The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but for thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure that we are ready, ready to concentrate, focus on God's Word, ready to submit to the instruction of His Word, few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Private confession of sin to God the Father for the purpose of restoration of fellowship, filling of the Holy Spirit, so we can learn doctrine under his teaching ministry. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we can gather together as a body of believers this morning to study your word. We thank you for the breadth and depth of your revelation, that you have revealed to us everything we need to know. Your, your revelation, like your grace, is sufficient. It is enough. It has provided everything we need. Now, Father, we pray as we study your word that we can understand these things and gain a greater appreciation of your work throughout history, especially in the Old Testament. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to find out this morning, when you get the tape, what kind of miracles Jim can perform up there in the sound booth, and how long my voice will actually last this morning. And I hope that you can understand whatever it is I say this morning, because I have been taking whatever antihistamines, they always give me an out-of-body experience. And uh, I had a seminary professor who used to say, well, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there'll be a fog in the pew. Well, this morning there's a fog in the pulpit, so I don't know where that's going to leave all of you. I just hope that there's somehow there's some cogency and clarity and consistency to what I have to say this morning. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we continue our study of orienting to the Old Testament. Orienting to the Old Testament. And last time we stopped in the midst of our overview of the ten words of the Ten Commandments given in Exodus chapter 20. In 1 Corinthians 10.6, by way of review, let's go over a few things we covered last time. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things happened as an example, as examples for us, 
so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. This word example is the Greek word tupas, from which we get the transliterated English word type. Now, there is a branch of hermeneutics, which is the study of science of interpretation, called typology. Now, it's sad to say that a lot of times typology is overused and abused. Typology is basically a system of foreshadowing, a system of representation used in the Old Testament where certain events, certain objects, foreshadow or represent doctrinal truths, doctrinal principles that are later revealed in the New Testament. The most glaring example is that of the sacrificial lamb that was a lamb without spot or blemish. This is a type of Christ. John the Baptist recognized this when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see typology throughout uh, all of these things that we're going to study related to the Exodus event. In terms of typology, the nation Israel is a type of the individual believer in the New Testament in many different ways. Now that does not mean, do not jump from the typological use of Israel to make conclusions like everybody in Israel was saved. That's not true. In the Exodus generation, I think that the majority were saved as a result of the Passover incident, the passing over the angel of death, the application of the blood of the sacrificial lamb, but not necessarily all were believers. But the nation itself is representative, and there are representative truths given in uh, this whole Exodus event that reflect or, or foreshadow doctrinal truths in the believer's life. For example, you have the Passover event itself is a picture of redemption. The nation was redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Slavery in Egypt is a type of the believer's slavery to sin prior to salvation. The uh, move through the Red Sea is a type of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit where the believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which happens at the moment of salvation and makes a clear, distinct break with the old life. The same thing is true in the New Testament. We're identified with Christ. That's the essence of baptism is identification. Then you have the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Notice in terms of the typology, the giving of the law is after the salvation of the nation. The redemption of the nation takes place first. Then there is the revelation of divine requirements. It's not the other way around. If that were properly understood, nobody would think that you could be saved by keeping the law. Uh, Israel was never saved by keeping the law. The purpose of the Mosaic Law was not soteriological. It was primarily legal. They were establishing a new nation. We have said that there are three things required to have a nation. You have to have a people. You have to have a constitution or body of law. And you have to have a land. Well, the people came with the calling of Abraham and Abraham's descendants through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then approximately 70 went down with Jacob to Egypt, and there in the womb of Egypt, the nation flourished and grew to approximately two and a half to three million people by the time of the Exodus. I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. So, so often we think in such small numbers, two or three hundred or several thousand people traveling through the desert, that there were approximately two and a half or three million, and that should... Uh, indicate something about the degree of activity and the dynamics that were going on with that large, large crowd of people. 
So they come to Mount Sinai, and they stand before the mountain. And in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6a, we have what I think is the central passage for understanding the Old Testament. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, says the Lord, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, it relates to his sovereignty, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. For this decree sets Israel apart, sets the nation apart from all other nations on the earth, and they will be the nation who will be the mediatorial and intermediary agency for all other nations to come before the Lord. Now, the giving of the Mosaic Law is specifically related to this to show how they are to function and to live before man and before God as that kingdom of priests. Now, in the same way, there's an analogy with the church because we're a kingdom of priests. Every believer is a priest, and we are to function as ambassadors of Christ and live before God and before man a certain way in order to carry out that same mission. So there is a parallel concept there, and there's a tremendous amount of application that we can draw from that. Now, from this, we see that there are three things that are given. First of all, that God's purpose is to create a nation that will be a precious, and we saw the study last time of the Hebrews, that, that means a unique treasure, a valuable possession for Almighty God. Secondly, there to be a kingdom of priests, and access to God will be limited to, through to the nation Israel functioning in that intermediary state. And third, that the nation will be holy, which means to be set apart to the service of God. We said that this covenant is modeled after a secular treaty called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty Form. Suzerain refers to a nation that controls another nation in international affairs, but allows it a certain measure of domestic sovereignty. And the word vassal refers to a person or maybe a uh, feudal lord who held land and received protection from a, a suzerain in return for homage and allegiance. And this is the model that man serves as the servant of God in order to rule. He has God has delegated to man certain responsibilities in order to rule the earth. And we see this, we trace this theme all the way back to the creation of man. And the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty was a mid-2nd century millennium B.C. treaty between a powerful king or empire and its vassal states or client nations. It was composed of a preamble, which is analogous to Exodus 20, verses 2a, where we read, I am the Lord your God. Just a simple statement here in the text of identifying God as the Lord, the King. Uh, in secular treaties, this would go on and on. There would be a lot of verbiage, and the king would be built up, and a lot of flowery language uh, and hyperbole about how great and wonderful he was. So this stands in contrast with the very simple uh, straightforward statement, I am the Lord your God. The second section in a Susan Vassal Treaty was a historical prologue which would identify the parties. Uh, this is the second part of verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then there would be a section which gave various stipulations. General requirements are given in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 17, which we know as the Ten Commandments. And then there would be specific, there are specific requirements given in Exodus 20, verse 22, down through 23, 13, which is called the Book of the Covenant. Then there would be a provision for reading so that the people would be, and the, the vassal would be continuously reminded of his obligations and of the stipulations in the covenant. 
That's given in Exodus 24, verses 2 through 7. And then there would be certain witnesses to the covenant. And here we have God on the one side represented by the altar and the tribes on the other side. This is given in Exodus 24. And then there would be a list of various blessings and cursings. Now, we're going to come back and talk about the blessings and curses in relationship to Deuteronomy probably next time because to understand the history of Israel is to understand the blessing and curses passages at the end of Deuteronomy. If you understand what I'm talking about in last week, this week, and next time, that gives us the framework for understanding everything that happens in Israel's history. Uh, you come back later on and you hear about Elijah coming out of the wilderness and Elijah comes to Ahab and says there's going to be a drought in the land until I pray for it to rain. Now you can't understand that if you don't understand the Mosaic Covenant because in the curses section of Deuteronomy, God says that as part of the five cycles of discipline on the covenant nation, God says that at, at one stage, one stage of that discipline is that there would be economic uh, collapse due to it's an agricultural environment due to a drought in the land. God would close up the heavens. The sky would be um, like burnished bronze and there would be no rain. And so when Elijah comes to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain again until I say so, you cannot really understand what's going on unless you understand that this is part of a, an announcement of divine discipline on the nation as per the Deuteronomic curses. So everything that happens from, from Joshua on is directly related to the dynamics of the Mosaic Covenant, God fulfilling his, his uh, promises, both in terms of blessing and curses in the uh, Mosaic Covenant. When we started last time looking at the Ten Commandments, which is like the, uh, sort of like a prologue, like the preamble to our Constitution. It's a summary of ten mandates, ten laws that guarantee freedom, privacy, and provide the outline, the ethical outline for the entire uh, judicial system and legislative system in Israel. It's based later, and we'll see as we get into the, the uh, judgments, the Torah, the judgments and the rest regulations, which are called the Mishpatim, that they are basically case law. Case law is the idea that if somebody does such and such, then this is what, what you do in that particular situation. And that becomes a precedent for much of Anglo-Saxon law and our legal system is based on case law. And then third, the third section of the Mosaic Law deals with the spiritual life or ceremonial regulations in the law. And this has to do, as we'll see this morning, with the priesthood, the function of the priesthood, the garb, the dress, the uniform of the high priest, and the feast days and the sacrificial system all of which was designed to teach certain principles in a very vivid, visual way about salvation, the doctrines of soteriology, and about the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is Christology. So we began last time looking at the first commandment. God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the point here is simply that there would, this excludes the worship of all other gods. It is a prohibition of idolatry. It's a prohibition of polytheism. And is it a state, statement that there would be exclusive worship of God. That if at any point in time they went to another deity, another god, another, an idol for something, then that would, uh, 
put that other god at that point before God, before the Lord God, and that would be idolatry. And so the foundation for every all the absolutes is in the person of God because of His sovereignty, because He created the universe the way it is, and because the universe is the way it is, and everything functions the way it does in the universe because God decreed it to be such. So we we have to understand that we live in an era. We'll get into this some in the second hour if my voice survives. We live in an era of relativism. Relativism ultimately grounds law in consensus and in the, the views of the majority. And if the majority happen to be biblically oriented and operating on divine viewpoint, then of course they can be right. But if the majority are operating on a system of human, human viewpoint, a system of relativism, then the majority will always be wrong. That absolutes come are handed down from heaven. They do not come up from the creation. And so it, what we understand at the root of the Ten Commandments, even though these are for believer and unbeliever alike, is that if you're going to live in God's world, and if you're going to have any degree of success, any degree of happiness, any degree of stability, uh, both nationally as well as personally, then it must be grounded upon the absolutes of God's Word and on the reality of who God is and what He has done. The second command uh, proscribes um, idolatry. The first command it prescribes, excuse me, the first command prescribes uh, monotheism. There is only one God and it is the second command that, that proscribes idolatry. Verse 4 you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness, and this is a very significant word in the Hebrew, it's chesed. Now, there's a lot of discussion on that in the scholarly literature. It has to do with God's faithful and God's loyal, unwavering love. It is often associated with his covenant promises. So it's a strong word related to covenant obedience. To showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I want you to notice the connection here between loving God and obedience. We have seen that same thing again and again in Jesus' discussion of love and the new commandment in John 15. Those who love me keep my commandments. Now the point that we need to realize here is that normally when we hear the word love, what we associate that with is some sort of emotion, some sort of feeling, some sense of warmth or uh, attraction to somebody. And that is not at all how the Bible uses it. When we look at these synonyms, for love, and we look at these other words that are associated with love, what we see in, in the Scriptures is that love for God is equated to obedience to God's commandments, to making God, the worship of God, a priority in our life, and learning everything there is to know about God, and thinking as God would have us to think. It is not a sense of feeling, it's not a sense of, of a lifted spirit, it's not some kind of sub subjective warmth. You may have that at times. You may not have that at times. That depends on a wide variety of factors. But the criterion 
in the scriptures for evaluating our love for the Lord is always very objective and very clear, and that is related to uh, doing the right thing. So, in ter- and doing the right thing is defined as applying uh, doctrine. Now, one question that comes up may come to your mind when you read this uh, mandate in verse 4. It says, You shall not make an idol or a likeness of what's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or water under the earth. Does that somehow prohibit the visual arts, such as uh, sculpting or art or something of that nature? And there have been those Christians at some point in history who have interpreted this to mean that you can't make any representation of birds, trees, or animals. But the Hebrew word here for idol is the, is the word pestle. And pestle refers to, to an idol. Uh, and it is not simply an image, but it is an image that is designed to be worshipped. So there is a vast difference between having a statue of, of Jesus or a statue of some other biblical figure and are a piece of art that is portraying them and actually worshiping that art. Now, this in, in uh, church history, the, the major controversy over this is called the iconoclastic controversy, which took place uh, in the early, early Middle Ages between the Eastern branch of Christianity known as Eastern Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, Syrian Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, and the Western Church. They eventually split around the 10th century, and one of the reasons they split was over this whole issue of icons. It's very interesting. Uh, several years ago, when I was over in Russia, and I went into some of the, uh, I've been in a couple of Greek church, Greek Orthodox churches here, and had never seen it this overtly. But when I was over in Russia, and I went into some of the Orthodox churches there. You see the various icons are on stands. There are no pews out in the church. You would walk into a meeting uh, into the church like this, and there are no pews whatsoever, no place to sit. There's an area up in the front that is the, quote, altar, and that is uh, closed off so nobody can go there and desecrate the altar. And there are icons. There are these pictures of the saints just on the, all over the walls, and they will have these icons on stands sitting out all through the, the open area. And they will be just uh, absolutely covered in uh, flowers and candles all around them and people coming and lighting the candles and praying. And and they're literally worshiping the idols, even though they would say technically they just are a representative aid to worship. They are really more than that. It it slips over into um, a form of idolatry, and that is why the Western Church condemned that practice in the Middle Ages. And one one of the reasons why the the uh, Eastern churches split off from the Western churches because the Eastern churches have a tendency towards mysticism at the very core of their at the very core of their thinking. In fact, that's one of the difficult things sometimes in dealing with with uh, uh, folks in Russia who are coming out of a Russian Orthodox background is that they have much uh, because of the heavy laden mysticism. They they have their, their thinking is much more akin to uh, uh, Hinduism and the mysticism of Eastern religions than it is to uh, Western Christianity. I'm just drinking coffee, but the warmth seems to help a little bit. wish I had something in there like cough syrup or something that would coat it. Now, we know that the Bible does allow for art and does promote artwork. 1 Kings 7.23 
uh, does so, and just think in terms of all of the artistry that was involved in making the furniture for the temple, for the tabernacle. Where if we get there this morning and talk about the tabernacle, God the Holy Spirit came upon Bezalel and Aholiab and the craftsmen, the goldsmiths, the silversmiths, all the craftsmen that built, the carpenters that built the tabernacle were uh, given wisdom and skill. It's that Hebrew word, chokmah. That's a good word to pronounce if you've got a sore throat. It's uh, that Hebrew word, chokmah, which uh, is used for wisdom in the proverb. And in Exodus, it talks about, it, it means skill. That's the root meaning of it. So when you read the Proverbs and you talk about how that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom is, is the application of doctrine in the life so that we produce a work of art that is uh, an expressive testimony uh, in the angelic conflict. So art is very much mandated and uh, prescribed in the Scriptures, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's... Um, it's not a violation of any of these particular principles. Now, one of the things that we have here in the opening four commandments is that there is reasons given for each one of the mandates. The first two uh, commandments, verse 3 is commandment 1, verse 4 is commandment 2, is that they, uh, they're linked with an explanatory clause in verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them. And the word for serve there goes back to the word that we had at the very beginning uh, related to Adam's work in the garden. So you see, what I'm trying to do is point out that this terminology to serve God, Adam was placed in the garden to work and to serve or to worship. This term abad is often used for worship and it is that our work and our fulfillment of God's mandate for our lives is part of our worship. And we are to renovate our thinking so that uh, we can work in such a way that it brings uh, brings glory to God and we view our work. And that's one of the important things we ought to develop at some time is a theology of work and a theology of labor. But what we see here is that throughout this, these terms that are used of in, in covenant context tell us something about the original purpose and creation of man. And here it would be a perversion because man is created in the image of God to represent God. And here in idolatry, there is a role reversal, flip-flopping man's role. And man who is the image creates another image and begins to serve that rather than serving God. And so it's a perversion of, of God's purpose for man. You shall not worship them or serve them. Why? And then we have our explanatory cause, which covers both in the first two commandments. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, a couple of things we have to say here. Once again, we get back to that somewhat uh, controversial theme of whether or not there is emotion in God. The term jealous, as it's translated here, is really a theological statement. It's from the Hebrew word kanah, which means to be jealous. That's a negative sense. That's when somebody's over-possessive, over-protective, it can also mean to be zealous, to have a, a, a possessiveness for, a, for I, I, I mean, a, a passion or a desire to completely possess that which is rightfully one's own. See, what the difference between zealous and jealous is in jealousy you seek to control that which really isn't yours. Uh, it goes beyond the bounds. Whereas zealousness is something that is yours and you have uh, a, a right to that. Zealous is not necessarily 
a, a, an emotion. Um, but as I've said before, I think that a lot of this terminology is what is called anthropopathic terminology. Now, this is anthropos is the Greek word for man, anthropopathic, pathos for emotion. And an anthropopathism attributes to God human emotion that God does not actually possess. In the same way you see an anthropomorphism, which is saying, talking about the eyes of God, the nose of God, the ears of God, attributes to God something in human form that God does not actually possess. God does not have an eye, eyes and ears and nose like man does. But when we use that term I, there is something in human experience that we can relate to and it tells us something about the plan, the purposes, or the policies of God. So there, this is called analogy. You know, Scripture says that God's thinking is not our thinking, and His ways are not our ways. So we cannot understand God necessarily as He is, but we can understand true truth about God. Our, our truth, what we understand about God is not exhaustive. But it is analogical. Now that gets into an incredibly detailed epistemological problem, and I'm not about to go into that this morning, not with my fuzzy brain. But we'll just stop there that anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms build on analogy. Now, for an analogy to work, there has to be something somewhat an analogous on God's side. Over here we have God, over here man. So man has something on this side, and you're using that as the analogy to communicate something, then there is something on God's side, but it's not equivalent to what man has. And if you take some time to look at the dictionary and look at the word emotion, emotion's been defined a lot of different ways. Emotion's been defined as a response to intellect. It's been defined as a, a passion. Uh, it's been defined as, as a uh, appreciator. All of these things indicate that something happens that is new, that generates this response in us. Since God is omniscient, he knows all the knowable, he's immutable, he can never change, that means then that, that uh, God's, God, to have emotion in any way like we have emotion, would have serious problems with both his omniscience and his immutability. So we have to take that into account, and there really needs to be a lot of precise thinking done in this area, and I don't find that too many people really want to get into it and slice the baloney to quite that thin, but that's the kind of work that needs to be done, very precise defining of terms and other things of that nature. But let's just go ahead and uh, move on now. Verse 6 says, or the second half of verse 5 is also a bit of a problem passage. God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. I hesitate to ask you to do this, but would you bring me a uh, glass of ice water, please? Without the salt this time. What, what have you got there? I, I need some kind of lozenge. I'm getting a lot of... Yeah, that'll probably help. Oh, good, it's a ricotta. That's good. Not the sugar-free one, but close enough. Maybe that'll help. Thanks. 
Okay, Ezekiel 18.20 says, Ezekiel 18.20 says that the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Now, this seems to stress the fact that sin is not punished except individually. You're responsible for your own failures. You're responsible for your own successes. It's not somebody else's responsibility. If you fail as a parent, it's not going to be brought upon your children. Now, we look at this particular passage. It seems to suggest just the opposite. It seems to suggest here that that the sin of the fathers is brought upon the children on the third and fourth generation. But what's going on here? Thank you, sir. What's going on here is we have to look upon the word of down there. I mean, literally in the Hebrew, you've got the iniquity of the fathers on the children of those who hate me. So, what we have here in the Hebrew on the children is really a lamed, which is a preposition. Um, it reads, of those who hate me. You have a lamed there at the beginning of that participle. And the lamed of a preposition is a lamed of reference, which literally means with reference to those who hate me. So the discipline that extends down through the fourth generation curse, and that's what this is a reference to, is that that God continues to show his loving kindness to those who respond to him and keep his commandments. But if one generation is negative to God and they reject God, then if that is passed on to their children, then those in that next generation who continue in that path will continue to receive divine discipline. They are those who continue to hate God or reject God. A lot of times in Scripture you have to be careful with the word love and hate, especially when they're used in the same context because they're not speaking necessarily of absolute love or absolute hate, but they are used in what's called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech that uses opposites like heaven and earth means everything, the whole universe. Uh, darkness and night, the psalmist meditates on God's word day and night. Day and night are opposites. All day, all night. It just means continually. These are figures of speech. We talk about that, that uh, uh, well, somebody doesn't weigh very much. They weigh that way, wet or dry. You know, that's both ways, any way possible. It covers all the, all the contingencies in between. So love and hate is often used as a merism. And when it's used that way, the love means acceptance and hate means rejection. It's not an absolute hate in the sense of a negative, uh, a negative sin. So the, the sin, the iniquity, the, the iniquity specifically in the passage is idolatry of those who hate me, that is, those who have rejected God and erected idols, either physical idols, concrete idols, or abstract idols of the mind. Now, we consider ourselves a fairly sophisticated culture, and we don't have idolatry, people think, but the idols that we have in our society are uh, mental abstractions. We worship money. We worship the things that money can buy. We worship we worship education, we worship all kinds of abstract ideals uh, that we set up in place of God. Anything that is in your life that is a priority above and beyond God in the learning of doctrine is an idol. So this is a prohibition of idol, uh, a prohibition of idolatry. And in verse 6 there is the 
principle that God does indeed show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Then we come to the third commandment, which says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, what's the sense of this? You know, usually you'll hear some Bundy Holy Roller trot out the fact that, well, you can't blaspheme or say Jesus or God or, you know, fix that as some sort of preposition to a, to some other curse word or something like that. And I think that is a, an application, but that's not what this text is talking about. This is a very interesting commandment. The idea of the Hebrew word here that's translated uh, vanity, taking the Lord's name in vain, means to attach the name of God to a, to a worthless cause. To lift up, literally to lift up the name of God to vanity, to something that isn't really there, to something that is false. I think one of the greatest examples of the violation of this commandment is when people say, well, well, God told me to do that. This is God's will. You know, God spoke to me last night and this is what we need to do. You know, there's a lot of religious hucksters out there that are claiming that they're teaching the truth of God's Word and, and uh, doing what they do in the name of God. And that is precisely what this is prohibiting. It is attaching the name of God to, to a worthless, meaningless, or false cause. It is cl- claiming the, the divine stamp of approval for that which God has not specifically authorized. So it is... Um, claiming God's approval for something that God has said nothing about. And it is, again, um, explained, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished. God, indeed, we're told, the Supreme Court of Heaven will operate and will discipline that individual. And so I want you to notice the first two commandments have an explanatory cause. The third commandment has an explanatory cause, clause. And the fourth commandment has an explanatory cause. Remember, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, whenever you read anything about a mention of the Sabbath, it's always attached to God's pattern of creation. If God did not pattern the creation after six literal days of creative activity, one following immediately upon the other, six 24-hour days, and then a seventh day of cessation of work, then the Jews could easily come along and say, well, God worked for it. Let me see. Each one of those days was really a million years. It represented represented a geological age. Those geological ages lasted you know, several million years, so that means I don't have to stop work. I can just keep my business open seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, and maybe once every uh, 10 million years or so, we'll take a million years off. I won't ever have to close down the shop. So, you know, however we are going to interpret the days of verse 9 of chapter 20, you have to use that same principle to interpret the days of Genesis 1. If you don't, you're in trouble. And you render both passages meaningless. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, which shows again the divine stamp of approval on work and labor, that this is something that is good, and honorable. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. Now, whenever you read about the Sabbath, we need to think about God's provision. Why did God rest on the seventh day of creation? God did not rest on the seventh day of creation because God was tired. 
Okay, granted, he did a lot in creating the universe, restoring the earth and Genesis 1, but that did not exhaust God because God does not weary or grow tired. He rested because his plan was complete and he had provided everything that man needed for sustenance on the earth. In other words, God's provision, God's grace provision in creation was sufficient. It was total. Nothing more needed to be done. This tells us that the Sabbath specifically speaks of the grace of God, the sufficiency of God's grace, and its absolute and total provision for us so that we are in turn, instead of trying to go out and take care of ourselves on the seventh day, um, or at least the Israelites, they were to rest. They were not to work on that seventh day as a sign that they were resting in God's provision. So it not only speaks of the sufficiency of God's grace, but it also speaks about the faith rest drill and faith rest life, that we are to continuously trust God and relax in His provision and rely upon His promises, His procedures, His principles, and His provisions so that we can advance in the spiritual life. Now, not only did this apply to the family, but it applied to the servants in the family. It applied to all the animals in the family. And everybody was to take the day off because it was to symbolize their rest in God. There was not only the weekly Sabbath, there was a sabbatical year. Every seventh year, they would take the entire year off to rest in God's provision. And then there was a, uh, every seven times seven, every 49th year, every 50th year, every hunt was a jubilee year. And these were to be taken off as well, so you would take the entire 49th and 50th year off as a uh, sign of trusting God. And, of course, the Jews didn't do that, and that was one reason they were taken out into captivity in the Babylonian captivity, but we'll get to that later. The reason is given in verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. This is not the original creative verb, bara, but asa, which takes us back to God's restorative activity in those six days of Genesis chapter 1. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath, made it holy. Now, this was for Israel. Nobody up to this point um, that we know of rested on the Sabbath and applied this. This is a, The Sabbath is a particular sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and it no longer applies. Sometimes you'll find people who... Uh, and, you know, the logic always escapes me. People who believe that Sunday is now the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, and so we really shouldn't do anything. And I remember a godly old missionary lady in my first church who had retired, and she just felt like you had to keep the Sabbath and you just couldn't work on the Sabbath. And yet every Sunday after church, she went down to the white cafeteria for lunch. And I said, well, you know, you're expecting all these other people to work on the Sabbath. I don't see the consistency in that. And then there's a very well-known, I won't mention his name, very well-known uh, Old Testament scholar who's written a number of books, and uh, he likes to keep Sunday Sabbath, and, and he does that by not watching football. I just, you know, I, there's just always these gaping holes in people's logic. The Sabbath was for Israel. It's the seventh day. It's Saturday. There's nothing in the New Testament that translates that to Sunday as the first day that we shouldn't work on Sunday. Uh, that has to do, you know, that we brought that into our culture through the old Puritan theology. And remember, Puritan theology is covenant theology, which doesn't see a distinction between Israel and the church. And so anything that, that, that is given in the Old Testament 
See, this is the difference between covenant and dispensational theology. If you don't know this, you want to write it down. In covenant theology, if God, unless God specifically says it ceases in the New Testament, if it's prescribed in the New Testament, then it continues in the New Testament. In dispensational theology, unless it is specifically restated in the New Testament, it was abrogated at the cross. Let me say that again. I see question marks there. Covenant theology says unless it is specifically said to have ceased, something is specifically said to no longer be in operation in the New Testament, such as these sacrifices and the priesthood, unless it is specifically said to have stopped, if it's mandated in the Old Testament, it continues all the way through the New Testament. So the Sabbath was mandated in the Old Testament, so it continues through the New Testament. Dispensationalism says unless it is restated in the New Testament, it was abrogated, it ceased at the cross. Therefore, since all of the other commandments are clearly stated in the New Testament except for the sabbatical commandment, it ceased at the cross. It is not restated. All of the other uh, mandates, principles in the Ten Commandments are restated in one way, shape, or form in the New Testament except for the sabbatical mandate. Now that covers the first four uh, commandments, and then we get down into the last, fairly common, and they are all basically grounded in the creation covenant, and they had comparable mandates throughout the Old, old, uh, old Testament ancient civilizations. In verse 12, we have the fifth commandment, honor thy parents, honor your father and your mother. Why? Because you have, that's where you learn authority orientation is in the home. If you don't learn, parents, if you don't teach your kids to respect you, your kids will never respect authority anywhere. That's the only place they're going to learn it. And frankly, I think they have to learn it before they're five years old or they're going to have terrible problems for the rest of their life. That's why it's your responsibility to teach them to respect authority. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, let me make a little comment here. This is why you have to have, it's very important to do a little observation in the text. I remember hearing a pastor, you'd be, you would be very surprised if I told you who the pastor was who said this. But I remember this when I was a little boy hearing this pastor say that, that you know, here's a promise here that if you honor your parents, you'll live a long time. Notice there are conditions to this. Your life will be prolonged in the land. That's a technical term in the Old Testament for in the promised land talking to Israelites living in the land under the Mosaic Constitution. Now think a minute. We turn over a couple of chapters, we'll see that if you were a disobedient, rebellious child, you were taken you were to be taken out into the public square and stoned. And your parents were to cast the first stones. I think that's a great idea. I think it would certainly solve a tremendous number of problems in our society because the principle that underlies it is that if you don't have authority orientation by the time you're an adolescent, you never will have it. You'll be a criminal, and you will be a problem to society, and so you need to be excised. You need to be removed from society, and that was, that was the principle. So that's why it says, respect your father and mother, so your days will be long. Because if you didn't, you were going to be stoned. It was a capital crime to disobey your parents. So you'll never forget that now. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder... It was poorly translated in the King James Version. You always have to find some pacifist who's anti-military coming along and saying, well, the Bible says you shall not kill. And they want to utilize that to justify 
uh, doing away with capital punishment and doing away with the military and war, pacifism and all of that. But the Hebrew word is ratzach, which means to to commit murder. There's about seven or eight different words used for taking of human life in the scriptures. There's just a general word for killing. This is a word that means murder, homicide. You shall not commit homicide because that that violates the, both the privacy and uh, of a person's life, takes away their freedom, takes away, it steals everything from them, their hopes, their dreams, their potentials, takes everything from them, their life, their future, their family. And so it is the greatest form of theft. And what we see is that this was first established in the Noahic Covenant. It is not the Mosaic Covenant that mandates capital punishment. It is the Noahic Covenant, which is for all people. It is for Gentiles and Jews. God restated this in the Mosaic Covenant and gave, gave, gave it depth in the case law. But we see the capital punishment has been delegated by God for the very purpose of controlling excessive crime. Now, God in his omniscience certainly knew that we would have judicial systems that would fail and judicial, judicial systems that would execute innocent people. Yet, even so, God still mandated the practice of capital punishment. It is not simply an option. It is something that should be regularly exercised with expediency. And uh, one of the problems we had today, I think somebody recently told me that there were some figures that came out that I think this was in New York, that it costs more to execute somebody in New York than it does to, to keep them alive. Because they have to go through appeal after appeal after appeal after appeal. And you add up all the legal costs and weigh that against how much money it costs to keep them alive, it costs less to just keep them alive and keep them on, uh, uh, in life imprisonment. And that's because we don't believe in a quick and judicial use of the death penalty. My personal view is that if we were to revamp our legal system, any, any crime committed with a handgun is automatically you're dead within a year. Any crime that involves sex, you're dead within a year. Any crime that involves drugs, you're dead within a year. Everything else, you go to work for the state and you pay it back fivefold or tenfold. Uh, no prisons, you do away with the entire... See, the problem we have is our whole penal system is based now on the philosophy, not of punishment, but rehabilitation. Scripture says the purpose for, for is punishment, not rehabilitation. And the per reason you have capital crime is because when some people allow their sin nature to go so far and to be so uncontrolled that they commit certain acts, they are irrecoverable. They are not... You cannot bring them back. You cannot rehabilitate them and they have violated their and given up the, their their um, right to continue to live. So the command here is you shall not murder, and then the next command, you shall not steal, which clearly recognizes the private ownership of property. This is totally against communism, socialism, or any of those things. It shows that at the root of the economics of Scripture that values personal labor and the rewards for personal labor and uh, uh, that, did I skip one? I think I skipped, uh, uh, you shall not commit adultery. I skipped that one. Prohibits adultery. This is a violation of the sanctity of marriage, and it steals someone else's spouse. And so adultery is prohibited because it violates the uh, divine institution of the family or and marriage and begins to break down the uh, foundational cohesive unit of society. Commandment 8, you shall not steal, protects private ownership of property. 
commandment 9 protects a person's reputation. You shall not bear false witness. This is not a command against lying. This is a command against perjury in the courts. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then the final commandment is a prohibition of mental attitude sins. Now, the interesting thing here that I would want to know is how are you going to enforce this? But this is simply a principle that is to underlie everything else that is given specifically in the case law of... Uh, of Exodus. Now, when we leave that, we get to get to go into the next arena in Exodus, which is that you have the case law given in 21 and 22, and then starting in about chapter uh, 25, 24, uh, 24, you have the covenant ratified, and in 25 you start the instructions for the ceremonial law, and this has to do with the construction of the tabernacle and the priesthood, all of which relates to um, the individual Jew's relationship to God. Here is a picture, an artist's conception of the tabernacle. One thing about the tabernacle is it was the center point of the encampment. Now, when you think about two and a half million, three million Jews out in the desert, they had a rather large campground. It's not like, you know, down here on Pachon Pond. There's a campground that's roughly a third to half the size of Rhode Island. And then all of the tribes had a specific place where they camped in relationship to the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was at the center of the encampment, speaking of the fact that, that as a person, God is to be at the center or the heart of our life. That's the idea there in that illustration. The use of the word heart, it means the center point. God is to be the central reference point in, in our life. Now, if we look at this, what we see is various elements uh, down here. You have you have the outer wall. There's only one entry point. Everything about this indicates something about the nature of Christ and God. Inside the innermost part of the tabernacle up here in this area is the Holy of Holies, and you, where you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the uh, where God, where the Shekinah glory resided. There's only one entry point to God. And everything about the tabernacle ultimately portrays something about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this tells us that there is only uh, one way to God, and that is through the entry here. And before you can get to God, you have to go through certain rituals. You have to go through certain rituals. First of all, there's the altar of burnt offering. This is a represent, repre, represents typologically, typologically salvation. For it is there that the lamb is sacrificed, the blood is applied to the four corner posts, and represents the application of the death of Christ to the believer in his sin. After the shedding of the, the sacrifice of the lamb, then the priest comes to the laver here. Here he washes his feet and he washes his hands. This represents confession of sin, cleansing from what we've done and where we've been, what we thought. There's cleansing here before you enter into the uh, tabernacle itself, which is composed of two, uh, two areas. Now, we'll put one other picture up here. This is kind of a frontal view looking into the, uh, the tent of meeting, as it was called, into the holy place. It doesn't have any furniture inside. There were three articles of furniture 
that went inside the holy place, which is the outer part of the uh, of the tabernacle itself. Here we have another diagram to put up on the overhead. There's one entry point. You have the brazen altar out in the courtyard, then the laver. Then when you go into the holy place, you have a table of showbread on one side. Opposite, you have the golden candlestick. And then at the entry point into the the holy of holies, there was the altar of incense. Now, each of those things tells us something about Christ. And instantly, all of these pieces are made of acacia wood inside, and then they're overlaid with gold. And that pictures the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is true humanity uh, combined, joined with undiminished deity. So on one side you have the table of showbread, which represents the importance of God's provision for all of our nourishment, ultimately in Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Opposite that you have the candlestick, the, the uh, candelabra, which represents the revelation of God and his illumination of our minds to the truth. And ultimately, that represents Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And then we have the, the altar of incense. Here, the altar of incense represents the continued prayers of the saints going up to God. The fire was always lit. And that speaks of Christ's continual intercession for us as our great high priest. Then once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the inner sanctum, which was the Holy of Holies. And there was one article of furniture there. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that was, or a chest that was encased in gold, and it had a lid on it that was uh, gold, wood covered gold as well. And the center point of the lid was called the mercy seat. And all of this speaks of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Then there were two cherubs, or the Hebrew plural is cherubim, two cherubs that were. <coughs> atop the box. <coughs> Inside the box there were three things. There's manna, which represents God's provision for Israel for their physical sustenance. And of course they griped and complained about that when they were out in the wilderness. And so it represents their rejection of God's grace provision. There was Aaron's rod that budded and that represented the rebellion over Aaron's appointment to priesthood. And his staff was placed inside the, the temple I mean, the tabernacle and the others who were contending for the priesthood had their staffs placed in the, inside the tabernacle and his sprouted. Life was brought forth out of death. That's a picture of regeneration to show that Aaron had God's approval on him, but it reminds us of God's rejection of the high priest. I mean, man's rejection of the high priest, Jesus Christ. And then third element in there was the broken Ten Commandments, the tablets, that Israel had broken and violated, especially while God was giving them to Moses on the mountain and they're down uh, having Aaron build a golden calf. So the three things that are inside the box represent the sin of the nation and their rejection of God's divine provision. And the two cherubs represent, cherubs are always associated with the holiness and righteousness of God, his integrity, and they look down upon the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would take the, the, the blood of the lamb without spot or blemish to place that on the mercy seat so that as the holiness and the, as the righteousness and the justice of God look down upon the sinfulness of man, it is covered by the blood. And this is a picture of our salvation that our sinfulness is taken care of by the substitutionary 
atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is the Ark of the Covenant was the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory in the throne room of God on the earth. And the only other thing I want to cover this morning quickly is, is the priest, the priesthood. The priesthood, all the garments of the priesthood representing something significant as well. He had an ephod which was like an, an apron. Uh, that was made of the same material as the curtains and all around the tabernacle. And it had shoulder straps on which were set uh, precious, two precious stones and on which and there was a precious stone on each shoulder on which was set or engraved the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, six names on each stone. And it represented the fact that the high priest brought the nation Israel before, into the presence of God so that God would be gracious to the nation. He then wore a breastplate on his front that had 12 precious stones affixed to it, and they represented, of course, the uh, tribes of Israel. There was a name inscribed on each of the tribes. And because he wore this breastplate over his heart, which is the center point of his life, it is a, it is a visual representation of the compassionate intercession undertaken by a priest to Yahweh, so it pictures how Christ compassionately intercedes for us in the presence of God. He also wore a blue robe that was one piece, and um, I think that represents the fact that there's no him, and it's just a one-piece garment, that this represents the unity in the person of Jesus Christ. He wore a turban that had inscribed on it the Hebrew words, Tedash uh, Yahweh, which means holy to God separated to God. And then underneath it all, he wore linen garments to protect his modesty. This is in contrast to the pagan priests who many times were just naked before their various gods and the fulfillment of all of the um, fertility rituals and the uh, phallic cult that was so dominant in the ancient world. So all of this is designed to speak about God, to speak about his uniqueness, how the believer is to get into the presence of God and to teach basic principles about the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That there was only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace and that you have given so many wonderful illustrations of your grace and your love for us, and not the least of which is all of the things in the tabernacle that speak of the unique person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning that is without faith, without hope, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that certain right now. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to promise God anything. You don't have to feel sorry for your sins. Scripture says simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we do thank you for our study of this word. We pray that you would just challenge us with it. Help us to appreciate all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.